Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Nice to be here. I recognize some faces from over the years. Um, right up front, Carlos and um, lots of others, so it's a pleasure to see you all. Um, this morning I, I want to start out giving a little bit of my testimony, an introduction to where I came from, how I came to know the Lord, and how I came to be here today. Uh, at the age of nine or ten, I was uh, attending a, a church, a local church that was up the street from the house I grew up in, and um, I'd been attending there for quite a while going to Sunday school every Sunday morning, going to uh, vacation Bible school, all the little events that the church had for kids. It was quite an active church. We had a gymnasium. We had tremendous facilities that were built by the men of the church. And at that age, I remember sitting one Sunday morning in service, and, and uh, I was really paying attention to what the pastor had to say. As a 9 or 10-year-old, kind of unusual, but uh, I really worshipped this pastor, Dr. McKenzie, and thought the, the world of him. He was a, a pastor that loved his flock, and it really showed. And that particular morning, I don't remember the message. I have no idea to this day of what he said. After all, I was 9 or 10 years old, and it was about 50 years ago. But in any case, that morning, I, uh, I really dedicated my life. I, I prayed for the Lord to be my Savior. And uh, I was fully sold out for the Lord as a little kid in grade school. Um, that Christmas, I can remember my parents uh, bought me a little um, gasoline-powered airplane, and it was on a, a cable, one of those things you just fly around. Well, it was a little dangerous for my age, and my parents realized that, and, and I did too, and I was kind of afraid of the thing. So we brought it back to a store. Some of you may remember two guys. I'm dating myself there. But uh, we brought it back to two guys to exchange, and my dad and I walked up and down the aisles looking at different toys, and uh, nothing really caught my eye. And then I walked to one aisle and I saw a children's Bible. And uh, it just caught my eye and I just wanted it. And I, I bought that Bible and I read it from cover to cover multiple times. And uh, it really affected me. Things went well from there um, until I was in my adolescent years. Even at about the age of a couple years later, two, three years later, um, I started to wander. Uh, I don't remember exactly what caused me to wander, but uh, I do remember that um, I started to rebel. I wasn't very respectful. I still attended Sunday school and church, but it was more because my parents forced me to go there. Um, at the same time, I was uh, becoming a juvenile delinquent. As Joe prayed for prodigals, I was a young prodigal. I was getting involved in things um, that I shouldn't have, um, my siblings and I were known as a scourge of the neighborhood. If somebody heard the name Christensen, they cringed. They really didn't want us around. They're uh, their kids. 
Um, my parents at this time had become extremely active in the church. On Sunday, they were active from uh, early in the morning to sometimes late in the evening. Uh, Wednesday nights, they were there. My mom was in the choir and served on many committees. My dad was a deacon. Some people thought he was a pastor. He worked, worked really long hours, and uh, when he wasn't working, he was at the church. And through this, um, my siblings and I started to really get into trouble. My parents had no idea of what we were doing. Um, at the time, uh, began to drink a little bit. You know, beer became a, a goal to get, to get beer. Um, some of my friends got into drugs and alcohol even more. Um, we were doing pretty much anything to get a rush. Um, we started out doing things like pulling fire alarms, and that moved on to uh, starting fires, enjoying the fire department, having to come out and, and respond. Um, we did things like, uh, Pastor Joe would be uh, surprised, but um, we did things like breaking and entering into warehouses, destroying people's property, um, even breaking into the church. One night we uh, went to a youth group and, and Jimmy had opened a window and left the window open somewhat so that we were hoping the adults wouldn't see it. And we came back in the middle of the night and um, got into the church and we turned on all the speaker system and opened the windows and uh, they had a big organ and one of the guys could play and he started playing in the God of the Vita really, really loud. Of course, the neighbors woke up, the pastor woke up and we escaped out a back door and we weren't caught. Um, went back, thought we were pretty cool another night and uh, snuck in the same way, same window. Um, thought people would learn that the window was open, but obviously they didn't. So we snuck in, and in the back of the church, there was a steeple and there was a bell that hadn't been rung in years. All I remember in that tower were pigeons, maybe some bats. But uh, we got a chair, and we climbed up on a chair and somehow shimmied up and got the rope that connected to the bell. And again, opened the windows, and uh, we rang the bell. And uh, I'm sure the neighbors were absolutely shocked. Uh, but again, we were doing things for a rush. We thought we were being funny. My best friend at the time, um, a guy named Gary, I'd known him since second grade when I moved into the neighborhood. Um, Gary's father was a um, fire chief. He was very active in the VFW and the Masonic Temple. And uh, he loved all three opportunities, all three places that he was serving. But what Gary's father was really doing was being a bartender at all three places. And through this, alcohol was prevalent. It was prevalent in his home and my other best friend's home. So we had access to alcohol, and uh, we started experimenting with that more and more. The amazing thing through this is, unlike my siblings and some of my other friends, um, the Lord, I think, protected me, even though I was a prodigal. Um, I was never arrested. Um, I do remember a few rides home in a police car. Um, I'm sure the neighbors remember that, and it's one of the reasons we were known as a scourge of the neighborhood. But at age 15, Gary and I were sitting around one night, and with all the opportunity to cause trouble and bother the neighbors and everything else, um, we had a little different thing in mind. And we started wondering, or wondering, I should say, about girls and where the girls were. You know, adolescence was there, now our uh, hormones were kicking in. So we started asking around, where are the girls? And amazingly enough, where we heard the girls were, were at the church. 
where we rang the bell and where we, we played the organ. And uh, we weren't really uh, accepted there. A lot of people looked at us and, and thought, these kids are really nothing but trouble. But it, we went anyway. We went to a, a coffee house that was at the church. This was in 1970, and uh, some of you probably remember, many of you are too young, but in 1970, the Jesus Movement was in, in full um, blown force. It was in the news, um, it was in Time Magazine, and all of Life Magazine, and Newsweek. So things were going on, and the church wanted to attract kids. So a good way to attract kids was to kind of present the Jesus movement in a different way. And the church had opened a coffee house. And the coffee house was in a small room. It was uh, kind of darkly lit like a lot of coffee houses. I can remember uh, fishnets hanging from the ceiling and posters on the walls and, and um, a little stage where people would, would play uh, Christian music. Um, didn't know where the music was coming from at the time, but amazingly enough, years later, Diane and I were in a, uh, in a class when we first came to Calvary Chapel, and uh, we heard some of the same music. And uh, it brought tears to our eyes because we had been singing that music as uh, teenagers, but we didn't know anything about where it came from. And we were really blessed to know that it came out of Costa Mesa and Calvary Chapel. Um, at this time, I heard a message um, that somebody was giving, and uh, they, um, they gave the message simply, and they gave the Bible taught us simply. And through that, I was reconciled to the Lord. Um, and I'm thankful for that to this day. I think the Holy Spirit, amazingly enough, drove us or drew us to that coffee house. Um, after all the trouble we caused, all the things that we had done, the youth leaders knew who we were, my friend and I. And um, I think the older people in the church, um, who were probably my age, the age I am now, um, they weren't looking at us, they weren't accepting us, but a couple of the youth leaders reached out to us and uh, they just loved us. They accepted us for who we were, they invited us into the coffee house. And that was amazing to us that somebody would just see us um, not as the scoundrels we were or the juvenile delinquents, but just as two lost kids um, looking for the Lord or the Lord looking for us. To this day, um, I keep in touch with one of those youth leaders, uh, Rich. Uh, Rich was just, an, he was an inspiration to us, um, teaching us and um, inviting us into his home. Um, he'd play music for us, just a really great guy. And uh, his son later on became a uh, youth leader, and I got to meet him. And uh, Rich was able to say, hey, look at this prodigal that I met back in uh, my day, and he became a Christian. And through that, later on, I became a youth leader for about 20 years in, in two different churches. Completely changed my life at that time. Uh, the other thing, you know, I said, what was our purpose for going to the church? We really didn't have a purpose of looking for the Lord. We were looking for girls. And I'm not saying that this is something everybody should do. I'm not saying you should encourage your teenagers to go to the church to look for girls. But, uh, but that's what we were looking for. And we found some girls there. And uh, one girl in particular sits here today. I get a little emotional. Um, I noticed her. She was tall, dark hair, long, dark hair, 
She wore some uh, hippie clothes, kind of like, you know, dresses that, that dragged on the ground. And if she wasn't wearing that, she was wearing uh, like elephant bell bottoms that some of you may remember. She had wire rimmed glasses at the time. And she carried a guitar over her back. And uh, I started to uh, look at her. We started to talk. We started to date. Needless to say, her parents weren't very pleased. Uh, again, we were the scrounger of the neighborhood. We weren't, uh, or scourge in the neighborhood. We weren't looked upon very well. But uh, her parents came to accept me, and uh, Diane and I were married almost uh, 40 years ago. October 12th, we'll be married for 40 years. And uh, that was a blessing. Thank you. It, it was a true blessing, and, and I can say that um, through our vows, you know, we hear the vows for better or for worse, um, in sickness and health. Well, I got the better, and I got the health. Um, Diane got the worst, and, uh, and the sickness over time. So uh, at this time, my friend Gary, he started to wander. He wandered off. He didn't, he kind of came to the Lord, or came to know the Lord, but he wandered off and uh, started to get into some some other drugs and, and problems. And we went our own ways. A couple of years later, um, I reconnected with him and, and I asked uh, if we could go out on a double date, Diane and I, and he and his girlfriend. And uh, Diane was adamant, like, hey, look, this guy, he's, he's smoking a lot of pot. He's not really walking with the Lord. This is trouble. So I kept trying to talk her into uh, to accepting Gary. and. Uh, Diane eventually did, but she had a stipulation. She said, okay, we'll go out on a double date, but here's what we have to do afterwards. We're going to go back to the house, we're going to turn on the Billy Graham crusade, and we're going to watch Billy Graham. Well, I thought this was ridiculous, that Gary, you know, he's not going to accept this, but he did, and that night, Gary was saved. Um, he went on to, be, to go to Bible college and seminary and, and be a Presbyterian pastor, so... So that was Diane, you know, the Holy Spirit leading her to put a stipulation up. Um, but it was really good. As I said, the Jesus movement was in full swing. And uh, we were um, very involved. Um, we wore the um, T-shirts that were around at the time. We were, we were known as Jesus freaks. We were mocked at school. Um, we'd go to school in the morning. We'd sing in the hallways. Um, we would be a small group reading the Bible, doing a, a small Bible study, inviting other people in. But people looked at us kind of strangely, needless to say. And one night at the coffee house, I remember a, um, a speaker, I don't know who it was, but he gave out this little business card. And printed on the business card, there was a question. And the, the question at the time was, if you were arrested today and charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And at the time, I thought, of course there would. We'd have to have enough evidence. Um, you know, we didn't know a, a whole lot, um, but we were sure we were Christian T-shirts um, that had slogans on them. We had bumper stickers, those who drove cars. We had little pins that says, Jesus, love you, and, and some other things. So we figured people would know we were Christians. Of course we'd be convicted. But... Um, but I'm not so sure that's, that's the case. Um, so I go back to the question. And the question remains, if you were arrested today, or I was arrested today, um, and accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict me? And uh, 
I look at that and I say, as Joe prayed for, for what's going on in the Middle East, um, the persecution of Christians there, um, I thought about that. How are they convicted? How do people know they're convicted? And sometimes I think it's only because they're non-Muslim that um, they don't follow one of the Muslim beliefs. So they're, they're uh, convicted and persecuted. And I, I went you know, and thought about it and heard you know, recently on TV the, the atrocities and the radio and the internet. It's around us every day. We're hearing about it. I did a Google search and found it there was one particular organization that records the um, incidents of persecution of Christians around the world today. And the most persecution takes place in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. And then in the US and uh, Canada, we actually have about 1,200 recorded cases of recent persecutions. These, um, these range from kind of the ridiculous. Recently, there was a girl in the news who who uh, said, bless you, after a classmate, classmate sneezed. And um, the teacher was allowed to put her own classroom rules on the, uh, on the whiteboard. And one of her rules was no religious sayings in the classroom. She wanted nothing from the Bible or any other religion said in the classroom. So when the girl said, bless you, to her classmate, uh, the teacher admonished her for it. And the girl stood up and kind of stood up for her rights, saying, uh, I'm allowed to say this. My pastor said I could say it. And I think she was really just trying to make a case um, for herself and to maybe be in the news or something. But she was suspended in school suspension for saying, bless you. Now, that, that's kind of minor, and that's some of the persecution we see in the U.S. But then we see persecution in, um, again, Asia and the Middle East and Africa. And specifically, you know, we're, we're looking now in the news and we're seeing uh, atrocities. We see ISIS um, kidnapping women and children, raping uh, the women and girls, beheading people, um, burying people alive, Christians and non-Christians. But I go back to the question of, uh, you know, how would we be convicted? What would convict us of being a Christian? What evidence would somebody have? And um, I started thinking about it, and then I thought, well, of course we have works. So I, I went into, um, you know, I opened the Bible, and I, I went to one of my, um, my favorite, um, favorite authors of James, and I, I looked at James 2.14, thinking of works. And uh, it says, James says there, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? So James is talking about works, and, and I can agree with him, I think we all can, that um, we need to have works. But I want to make something clear and, and make sure there's no misunderstanding at this point that works don't save us. Um, we can go to um, Ephesians 2, and, uh, and there... Um, I'll go to it so I, I read it correctly. In Ephesians 2, uh, 8 and 9, it says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So it almost looks like if we didn't know our Bibles, if we didn't read the whole Bible, that uh, James and Paul are... Uh, 
have a conflict. One is saying works, and one is saying we're saved by faith, and that works have no meaning. Now, many of us come from churches that, uh, that taught works. There's a lot of churches that still teach works, that you have to be a good person, that it's kind of thing is you, um, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. And if you have enough good deeds, uh, God will look favorably upon you, and, and when you die, you will, you'll have everlasting life in heaven. Uh, but James and, and Paul really are speaking the same thing here, if you read further. And that is that um, in Ephesians 2.10, after we get through 8 and 9, Paul speaks a little further, and he says, um, he says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So when we reconcile the two, we know that first we have grace. We're saved by faith. The grace comes from God. We have nothing to do with it. It is his favor upon us. The faith is all that we have, even a little faith, and we are saved. After we are saved, the good works come. So I started looking into it a little further and saying, um, we're supposed to walk in these good works. What are these works? And I thought about it a little bit, and I, I found different works in the Bible, which we'll... I'll go over in a minute, but um, I had to go back to Ephesians 2.10 to read that again, and, and I looked at it, and um, the words that stood out was workmanship, God's workmanship, and I thought, um, what is this workmanship? I'd been to Bible college. I was um, active as an elder uh, for a long time, and one of the Bible college classes one day I was, I was sitting in, and I was asked to do a devotion. And uh, I was nervous um, about doing this in front of the class. There were probably 15 or 20 people. But I actually went back to this verse, and I looked at it. And um, I had head knowledge, but I didn't understand, you know, what was going on. It wasn't in my heart. I was going to Bible college um, more to get knowledge. It was the kind of thing, like, if I have enough knowledge, I'll be able to, um, to stand and speak with the pastors and other people that are educated in, in the church. But then I looked at that verse again, and I said, I'm missing something here. And I went over workmanship, and I tried to figure out what that was, and, and um, actually found that workmanship comes from a Greek word uh, meaning handiwork, that God is expressing himself. His workmanship is in us. So in a sense, we are supposed to be an expression of God, he in us, so that others can see him through us. This is much like a... Uh, if we looked at a painting, if a, an artist was doing a painting, they expressed themselves in the painting. Now, I, I had another thought, and that was, uh, I've been to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and I absolutely love going there. But there are sections with these beautiful paintings that I say, well, that, that's a nice expression of the artist. And then there are these paintings that I completely don't understand that look like somebody threw paint on the wall. And I, I thought, well, I hope that I am coming across as the, the nice painting and a good expression of God and, uh, and not one of these wild artists. So, um, so to be clear, God created us. We are his handiwork to do the good works that he prepared for us. This was the other thing that was kind of a re revelation to me. God um, uses us as his workmanship, preparing us to do good works. And this was before we were born. So that was, was, uh, was really something that stuck out. Um, but again, I still didn't know if that was the answer to the question, these good works. 
So I looked at it again and I said, um, you know, what are the good works? Are we performing good works? Are these works valuable in any way to us and to others? So I looked in to see what Paul had to say. Paul has written, you know, most of the epistles in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament. So in 1 Timothy, Paul says, he's talking about a widow and taking care of widows and how the widow um, would have behaved when she was married before losing her husband. And he talks about a widow, the good works that she would have perform, performed. Uh, one was bringing up children. That seems logical. Um, another was lodging strangers. And um, a third was relieving the afflicted. And um, I looked a little further. I said, okay, there are three good things. Now, you know, um, I'm not a widow. Um, so even though those things may pertain to me, let me look a little further. So I looked into uh, Titus, and there Paul says, uh, not by speaking evil of anybody, and this is what he's saying is a good work, not by speaking evil of anybody, um, being peaceable and gentle, showing humility, ready to give, a willingness to share, showing integrity, reverence, being incorruptible, that we should be zealous for good works, and that we should meet um, urgent needs. Um, in Hebrews, and in another uh, book in the Bible, it says um, we should continue to meet together, exhort one another, build one another up, correct one another. And um, here was a key, uh, be of good conduct and honorable among non-believers. So now... You know, I went for the short list from the widow to this long list of good works. And, you know, I started checking off, well, do I do any of these good works? But that's not really what God wanted me to see. Um, what he wanted me to see is that there are a lot of good works, and he wanted all to see that. So I'm going to just go through those slowly again. Bringing up children, lodging strangers, um, relieving the afflicted, um, that was for the widow. And then for all, not speaking evil of others, not uh, rumor mongering, um, not or being peaceful and, and gentle, being humble, ready to give, willing to share, um, having integrity, having reverence, being incorruptible, um, and meeting urgent needs. I thought about this list, and um, having served as a jury foreman, I start using this you know, logic. It's not Christian logic, but things that I learned as a, as a jury foreman. And if you've ever served, the one thing we always see, and there's a lot of these television shows, um, law shows and, and courts, where we are supposed to find somebody guilty only beyond a reasonable doubt. So that made me question the works. And I started thinking, um, okay, we have works. We know that we perform works, and we're supposed to perform works. But at that point, I started thinking about that's great, but I know Christians who um, performed good works. They were honorable. Um, they were incorruptible. They never said a bad word about anybody. They were willing to share. Um, they were very high integrity. And two people in particular, um, there was a man, his name was, was Charlie. And I, I got to know Charlie a little bit. Charlie was a state prosecutor. Um, he was very active in the church I was attending at the time. Um, he acted like a Christian. He did a lot of things in the church. He served. Uh, his home was open. He and his wife opened his home 
to teens. I can remember a Fellowship for Christian Athletes group meeting there on a weekly basis. They were always willing to share and to give more um, than the average Christian. And I was amazed one Sunday, as were a lot of other people, and uh, Charlie's wife, there was an altar call. And at the altar call, Charlie went forward. And we were all kind of surprised and looking at him, wondering, why is Charlie going forward? He's this, this great example of a Christian dad, a husband, a businessman, a prosecutor, active in a church. Why is he going forward? And uh, of course, his wife had the same question. And after he sat down, she said, Charlie, what were you doing? Why did you go up there? And he, and he said, you know, the message really got to me. And um, I finally decided to accept the Lord as my Savior. And we were all stunned as she was. Another example was uh, I was a youth leader for 20 years. In one of the churches I was a youth leader in, we had a group of about 60 uh, kids. And there was one family that was really active. And their youngest son, Art, was extremely active. Art was very, very talented. Um, he could sing as his siblings um, can. Um, and he could act. And um, Art went through high school. Um, sometimes he could be annoying. He was a teenager. He did things um, not like I did as a teenager, but still um, could sometimes, uh, let's say, just push my buttons. But Art grew up, he went away to college, and um, leaving college afterwards, he went on to be an actor. And he, I think he was working at Disney World or one of the resorts. And he felt called to, uh, to go to seminary. So he went to Bible college and seminary, and shortly thereafter, he graduated, and he became a youth pastor. Now Art was a youth pastor in, in North Carolina in a Baptist church, and uh, he had a pretty good group of people kids that were attending. And Art was in this pulpit as a pastor for a few years, and one day it came to him that uh, he wasn't a Christian. He had never really accepted the Lord. He uh, walked the walk. He talked the talk. He did everything you would expect. He was a great youth pastor, but he wasn't saved. And he said, again, it was head knowledge. He was born into a Christian family. His parents were Christians. His sisters were Christians. His brother was a Christian. Therefore, he thought he was a Christian. And he found out the Lord touched him and said, all right, you're not a Christian. You need to be saved. And at that point, he was saved. And his ministry flourished greatly after that. So there's two examples of, of people that, um, that knew, had head knowledge, thought they knew the Lord, um, but they really weren't Christians. Um, I think very often there is um, good works. We see Christians perform good works, but we also see um, non-Christians perform good works. I work with people. I, I, I work um, for the same company. I'm married uh, 40 years. I work for the same company for 42 years. Uh, things don't change. I'm slow to change. So uh, I'm, I'm very steady. So working in this company, I work in a purchasing department. And if you know anything about purchasing or what takes place in uh, purchasing over the years, there's something called um, uh, white envelopes. Very often people in purchasing are, uh, are kind of paid under the table to send business in a certain direction. And um, of course, people know I'm a Christian and, and I let it be known that this isn't gonna take place with me, but other people do accept these envelopes or had over time. Now I know other guys that I work with and I've known them for years and girls, and they are incorruptible. They would not accept that envelope. They wouldn't make a decision to give 
a uh, purchase order or to buy something from any company because somebody was bribing them. These same people, I've watched them go on uh, humanitarian mission trips to Haiti um, and other countries when a tsunami hit. Um, some people responded there. So I see this. They work in food banks. I've watched them work for um, Habitat for Humanity. I've worked alongside of them doing uh, charitable work that the company encourages us to do. Um, and it's all good. It's all good works. But they're not Christians. So I had to look at it and say, okay, they're not Christians. So therefore, good works alone wouldn't convict us of being Christians. I don't know Truthfully, a lot of you here, and I wouldn't know if, um, if you were all saved or somebody's coming to church because your husband or wife is making you come. For all I know, there could be a non-Christian or non-Christians here. Yet, I'm sure that some of you would be doing good works. I see it in every church I've attended. So we know that good works alone don't. Um, they're not evidence of us being a Christian. So I want to turn, I thought about it a little more, and going back to the coffee house and another lesson we learned, and, and there was a song we sang, and it was, um, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, um, and the chorus went something like, um, and I won't sing because there'd be a mass exodus, but uh, the chorus went something like, um, they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love they'll know we are Christians by our love, and uh, that was a very popular chorus back in the 60s, it was actually written by um, a Catholic priest who um, who wanted something fresh for his youth group to, uh, to hear, something fresh for them to sing. So I look to say, where did the verse or the chorus come from? Very often when we sing hymns or choruses, we sing them not knowing the, uh, the root. And if you look at a lot of the choruses we sing today, you can go back in the Bible and find verses that those choruses were written about. So I went back to, uh, to John um, 13, uh, and started looking there. Um, I'll, uh, I'll set the, the scene for you a little bit because I'm going to start at verse 31. But prior to that, um, this was, was at a uh, Passover meal Jesus was having with the disciples. Um, they had the meal together. Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. Peter wasn't too pleased with that and didn't want his feet washed. But uh, Jesus did it anyway. And... Um, he showed his humility, Jesus serving them, washing their feet. Um, it was a sacrifice for him to do this. He showed his true love for his disciples. After washing their feet, they got into a discussion, and Jesus was leading them to, uh, to let them know that he would be leaving them and um, talking about the crucifixion. Now, they didn't understand this at the time, but Jesus was going into it. He talked that he was going to be... Uh, um, deceived. Somebody was going to betray him. And the disciples wondered, you know, who was going to betray them. So one asked another. They didn't ask Jesus right away. Who do you think it is? But Jesus revealed that it was Judas. And at this point, told Judas what he had to do and go and do it. And Judas left the room. So I'll pick it up in, um, in verse 31. I'm reading from an NIV. Uh, when he was gone, that means Judas... Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. 
you will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So I, I look there and I, I, I see that um, Jesus um, giving them that lesson. Um, we learned earlier that Jesus was in complete control, that the Father had given him all things and all knowledge, and that he knew exactly what was to come. Um, in verse 31 and verse 32, Jesus uses the word glorified or glorify five times. And uh, I think he does that because the disciples were expecting something different. They, um, they didn't understand the crucifixion. They didn't understand why Jesus would be leaving them. And he wanted to let them know up front that uh, he wasn't going to be humiliated on the cross. This is something he had to do. This was going to be what saved the world. He was going to go willingly. And in this, he wasn't going to be humiliated, but he was going to be glorified. God was going to be glorified, and Jesus was going to be glorified um, on that cross. And of course, rising from um, the dead, he would be glorified, and we would therefore be saved. Um, I think of that, and sometimes of what I read, and sometimes I'm reading through the Bible, and I'm sure you'll have the same experience, that you get to a verse, and something um, comes to you, and um, it's repeated, the verse, within a verse or a group of verses, the same words repeated multiple times. I think that's because sometimes um, we're a little slow to, to gather the point. So God is really emphasizing it. So when he puts something in there five times, he means he will be glorified. We have to understand that. Um, Jesus further explained that uh, the disciples wouldn't be able to follow him when he was leaving. He was going to leave shortly, and um, they wouldn't be able to follow him. And, of course, they were really disappointed. But we're not going to go through it, but in, in um, chapter um, 14, Jesus consoles them, and he tells them that he's actually going to a place to prepare a place for them, that they will be reunited in the future. And he also talks about the Holy Spirit there, and that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to not only comfort them, but empower them. So he wasn't leaving the disciples um, just like, hey, see you guys later. Um, you know, I'm leaving. You won't be able to follow me. Sorry, you spent the last three years you know, following me, but all is done. He was actually giving them the future. If we go back to verse 34. In verse 34, he says, Now, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And I looked in there and, and did a, a bit of a word study, and I saw that the word new was very important here. Um, the way this word is used here, it, ex it expresses a fresh idea. Um, it's almost like shining a light, a new light on, on a subject. Uh, it would be as if you, um, you walked into a room and you saw something all the time, and then suddenly you put a new light, a, a brighter light on the subject, and you would see it in a new way. So, again, sometimes we, uh, I go back to reading verses, and sometimes I read a verse, and it doesn't have five examples or ten examples. Um, but I read it ten times, and the Holy Spirit reveals something new in that verse, something fresh. 
So what did the, the um, what was fresh? What was fresh and new to the disciples? In the Old Testament, um, the understanding in the culture at that time and, and the Jews had was that they were to love one another as they loved themselves. Um, an example of this we could see in, um, in Luke 1, the culture um, there and the story there, the parable is, is um, I'm sorry, Luke 11. The parable there has to do with a traveler coming to somebody's house late at night. If you were traveling through the Middle East at the time, and even today, very hot during the daytime. So when people traveled, they traveled on foot, and they would get to their destination very often at night when it was cooler. And uh, this one particular traveler came to his friend's house and um, was expecting, he was hungry, he was expecting something to eat. But his friend had nothing. At that time, you know, you didn't have preservatives. So people baked bread on a daily basis, and they baked what they needed for the day. But occasionally there would be somebody that may have extra bread. And they lived so close together, the houses were one on top of the other, that a neighbor would know if his friend and neighbor had extra bread. So the traveler knocked on his friend's door. The friend allowed him to come in, but realized he couldn't feed him. So he went next door to his next door neighbor, and he knocked on his door asking for bread. Well, in the culture and loving one another as they would love themselves, they ex would expect that the neighbor would have the bread and share the bread. But this neighbor was, um, I guess he wasn't loving people as himself. He wanted to sleep. He was tired. It was near midnight. And uh, the one neighbor kept knocking persistently, asking for bread. And the other neighbor wouldn't answer. And he finally said, hey, I'm asleep. I'm asleep with my children. At that time, they slept on a floor on a mat together. Uh, it would be cool to be sleeping on a floor, the coolest place in the house. So he wouldn't get up, but finally he get, got up and he gave the bread to his neighbor. And uh, that shows you love as if you were loving somebody as you would want them to love you, loving somebody as you love yourself. Um, but Jesus wanted us to go beyond that. He was talking to the disciples, and, and uh, one, one um, commentator had said that Jesus was giving them uh, a new commandment, a new, I don't want to say law, but new direction. The old law said to love your neighbors as yourself. The new law said, or commandment said, go beyond. Now you want to do a, a sacrificial love. And I, I think back again to my days in, in, um, in Sunday school and, and, and youth, little uh, grade school youth meetings. As I said, we had a gymnasium at our church and we had this group called Whales and Termites on Saturday mornings. And I think from kindergarten to uh, to sixth grade, you could come to the gymnasium and you would go into classrooms and you'd be taught um, the Bible and then you would have recreational time. And it was a great way to draw the kids from the neighborhood in. It was very active. And at that time, we sang a lot of songs. One of the songs I can remember to this day is, is J-O-Y. Um, again, I won't sing, but, but the song was J-O-Y, J-O-Y. Uh, Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. And this is where we would get... Uh, joy from. And this is what Jesus was teaching, that it was Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. We were to treat others um, more highly than ourselves. Sacrifice. So he says, uh, I have loved you. Um, again, the command wasn't new, uh, but following Jesus, he wanted the disciples to understand it. There would be a sacrificial love. An example of this in the Bible, again in a parable, 
would be more um, maybe the, the um, Good Samaritan. Now, the Samaritan obviously wasn't Jewish and, and um, wouldn't naturally reach out to Jewish people. Jewish people hated or despised Samaritans. Samaritans despised uh, the Jews. They really didn't get along. Um, the Jews actually looked at the, the uh, Samaritans as dogs, um, as low as could be. But uh, in this particular parable, Jesus talks about a, a Levite and a priest coming down a road, um, not together, separately, and they come upon a, another traveler, somebody that was beaten and uh, maybe left for dead. He was, he was left on the side of the road beaten and robbed. And the priest walked by and looked at the traveler and crossed to the other side of the road, wanting nothing to do with this person. And then uh, later the Levite walks by. Uh, I don't know if I have those in the right order. I'm paraphrasing. So the Levite walks by. Again, he crosses, and he walks on the other side. And at the time, in that culture, they would never touch a dead body. They wouldn't come close. I think they, the closest they would come to a grave was six feet. So they cross the road, and they pass, and they leave this, this person that was beaten and robbed. They leave him there, more or less, to die. And then a Samaritan comes along, and he sees this person on the side of the road. And a Samaritan stops, and he helps the person. He puts the person on his donkey, he takes him to an inn, and he pays to have the person taken care of. And this is more of a sacrificial love. Even though he was a Samaritan, and the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other, he went beyond. He went beyond what he would have expected uh, somebody to do for him. So that's an example. Um, by this you will know you are my disciples. This is the evidence when I look at um, the overall. Would we be convicted? if we were um, said to be Christians, what would the evidence be? Well, this is the evidence that Jesus says we should know, be known for. This is what sets us apart from do-gooders, from people who do good works but aren't Christians. Um, this is the evidence that convicts us. Good works um, are important. We know from uh, Ephesians 8 and 9, we know from James. Good works are important. We were made in God's likeness. We were um, God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship, and he has good works designed for us to do uh, that he's prepared for us before we were born. Um, it's extremely important. I, I love the verse because it says, I prepared these works for you. And, you know, I don't have to look very hard to find works that were prepared for me. Sometimes I may um, be more like the Levite and, uh, and the priest and pass somebody wrongfully. But other times, you know, I hope I'm more like this Samaritan and I'm going to stop and help somebody to go beyond um, loving my neighbor um, as myself. And um, I'll give you a few examples of Christians I knew um, where I saw sacrificial, true sacrificial love. Things that they did that went beyond what would normally be inspected. And um, I have a friend, his name is Jim. Um, Jim was active in a church. He sang in the choir and everything. And, and I saw that he, was, he did certain things. Later on, he went into marital ministry and so on. Um, but I saw a sacrificial love in Jim. What had happened was there was a man. It was a small church not far from here. Very, very small congregation of maybe a, a few dozen at the time. And one of the, uh, the women that attended the church, her husband had um, kidney disease. He didn't attend very often. He wasn't active. Um, maybe he would show up if there was a covered dish supper or something special going on, but he really um, wasn't there very often. 
And this man developed this kidney disease, and it was getting worse and worse. And of course, the church was praying for him. They had a prayer list in a, in a Sunday bulletin. They prayed for him at, at Sunday morning at church. They prayed for him, uh, for him at Bible study. Um, they had something listed at the time on their, uh, their internet page. And everybody was pay, praying for him. They were supporting his wife and, and, uh, and building her up. But the man went downhill over time to the point that um, he was getting dialysis every day. He had to be at, at the uh, hospital every day. And he had to go on a, a uh, waiting list for a kidney. Now, the way it works, that, uh, as I understand it, is if you're older and in really bad health and not expected to do real well and your lifespan is short, kind of reminds me of um, something that we've heard lately in, in um, Obamacare, I hope nobody takes offense by that, but you know, you're looking at lifespan and, and maybe not giving people the medical treatment they need because they're elderly. So this man was getting older, but Jim prayed and he prayed for the man. But then one day, I think the Holy Spirit came upon him and Jim thought, you know, I have two good kidneys. Why can't I give a kidney to this man? So Jim was tested and it turned out that he wasn't an exact match, but you might not have an exact match. Somebody that's close Today, with the pharmaceuticals and drugs, they can uh, donate a kidney. So Jim donated a kidney, sacrificially. Now, the cool thing about this is, how do other people know Jim is a Christian? How do they know this was sacrificial love? It's because the doctors, the nurses, the, uh, the man's friends, his family, neighbors, they all heard. They heard this, this testimony of Jim sacrificially giving a kidney. It was absolutely amazing. So they knew, and we can say today, that Jim could be convicting, convicted of being a Christian. There's enough evidence by what he did. Um, the Lord prepared that for him before he was born, but Jim acted on it, and he gave sacrificially. Another example is um, of a friend. Um, some of you might know him uh, in the past, Mike Beaver. Uh, Mike was an elder in uh, another church, and uh, I got to know Mike very well. He was a, an airline pilot for American Airlines. And uh, Mike was a, a really good guy. He did a lot of things. He sacrificed. He worked with youth. He'd go away and take troubled youth down south on, um, on, for weeks on end in the summer. And um, he was just a really good example. But on 9-11, Mike was in the air. He was a pilot. He was flying for American Airlines from uh, LaGuardia Airport to uh, Florida. And uh, after the planes hit the Twin Towers, the pilots were hearing chatter over the uh, radio. They weren't told what was happening, but they knew something was wrong, that there was something not quite right about that day. So after hearing this chatter for a while, the next thing they hear, nothing about hijacking, but they're told to close the door to uh, where they're flying this plane. So they close and lock the door, and they're getting really nervous. And then they're told to put down. And Mike, instead of flying to Florida, has to land the plane in, in, um, in Georgia. And he stayed there from Tuesday to, to Saturday. And being nervous and having been in the air, the airlines at that time had said, these guys wouldn't have to fly. They wouldn't have to fly a plane to get home. But Saturday came, and Mike got noticed that he had to fly a plane. And he wasn't going home. They had him fly a plane to, to Chicago. And then from Chicago to Newark, and then he had to drive to LaGuardia to get his car. Well, Mike, after that, got really nervous when he was flying and other times, and he thought he was developing an ulcer. 
And he went to the doctor, and the doctors thought he was developing an ulcer. They did an endoscopy, and they tested him. And sure enough, they thought he had an ulcer, and he was being treated as such. But in actuality, Mike didn't have an ulcer. Mike had pancreatic cancer. Mike was hospitalized for months. And when I say months, there'd be weeks where he'd go to the hospital for two or three weeks, but then there were stretches of like eight to ten weeks where he was hospitalized. And through this, there was a friend of his named Carl. And Carl went to that hospital almost every night for months. He would go to work in the morning. He would come home and have dinner with his family, um, stay home for a little while. And then 10 o'clock at night or so, he would go to the hospital to comfort Mike. And he would go there and they would sing hymns and praises together. They would read the Bible together and they'd pray together. And if Carl couldn't be there, somebody would substitute for him and go there. And there wasn't a night that I know of that Mike didn't have a visitor, that he didn't have somebody there, another fellow Christian, to comfort him. Um, this went on for mo months. Um, unfortunately, Mike passed. But uh, to this day, there are people in Robert Wood Johnson who, uh, who talk about that. The doctors, the nurses, um, I even met a receptionist. She was wearing a pin that, uh, from American Airlines that was a memorial to the 9-11. And she wears that pin, and I asked her about it. And she said, oh, I got this pin from a man named Mike Beaver. And she told us about, or told me about Mike. And um, she told me about Mike, and she told me about all the visits he had, and how people went there, and how that inspired her. And how when her husband died, Mike was... Was, was dying, but people um, comforted her in her loss of her husband and how impressed she was that this was a real, true Christian, a Christian act, works that we could find as evidence. And I'll give you one last example. Um, I said earlier that, that um, when Diane and I got married, we took our vows for better or worse, for sickness, um, in sickness and health. And Diane's had a couple times in, in her life um, where she really had um, illnesses or was injured. And one time she fell and broke her leg. Um, she went to a, a women's Bible study at somebody's house, and she was leaving, fell in a driveway, and really fractured her leg. And she needed to have a rod inserted in an operation, and she was uh, on bed rest for quite a while. She couldn't go anywhere. So through this, her mom would come very often um, during the day to sit with her. Um, but sometimes she couldn't, so other people would come. And I can remember people taking a day off of work, giving up a vacation day to come and sit with Diane and comfort her and talk to her and pray with her and, and, um, and sing with her. And uh, the first day we came home from the hospital, I remember pulling into the driveway and in, on the front porch was a box, a cardboard box, quite large. And uh, I got Diane in the house, which wasn't easy. We got her up upstairs and went down to get the box. And in that box was a turkey dinner as if it was... Uh, Thanksgiving. It was huge. Everything was there. And uh, the dinner was from a, a couple, Mike and Nettie. Nettie cooked this dinner. And uh, the thing is, Mike and Nettie had a business. They were in a roofing business, and it wasn't going real well. And financially, they were just about making it. They were just making their bills. Yet they went out and sacrificed. Nettie cooked this wonderful meal. Nettie's a wonderful cook, but she left that meal for us. We had no idea she was going to do that. And for months thereafter, people also cooked meals for us, sacrificially. Another time, about almost eight years ago, Diane had a brain aneurysm. And we didn't know what was going on, and she was moved from, from Central State to Robert Wood Johnson. And, and when we did the math, there was like a 15% chance that she would have even have 
gotten to the hospital. That's what the doctors told us. And then they told us there was a 15% chance that she would leave a, live a normal lifestyle. And you can see she's here today. She lives a very normal lifestyle. So um, she had this aneurysm. They moved her to the hospital. I spent approximately a week at the hospital with her, going there at night, making sure I was not just there at night, all day and night, sleeping, making sure she was well taken care of, that she wasn't disturbed. Occasionally, somebody would come to visit, and I'd go home and take a shower and get a change of clothes or two and go back to the hospital. And this one day in particular, I got home, and I pulled into the driveway, and uh, it was like a miracle. There were leaves. We live in a wooded neighborhood. And uh, I love the fall, but I hate raking leaves. Absolutely hate raking leaves. And it takes weeks. It, it, it's like three four weekends in a row. I pulled into the driveway. The yard was clear. There wasn't a leaf on the ground, there wasn't a leaf under a bush. A miraculous job. And it turned out that Mike, again, having financial problems, his business wasn't doing well, he took a day, brought his crew and his two boys to our house, and he just raked the leaves. I didn't ask him to do it. He did this out of the kindness of his heart, sacrificing his day, his day where he could have been out uh, making a profit. Instead, he sacrificed and, and did this for us. There's Three examples. Um, I could give you many more of things that happened, but I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, what I want to do today is challenge you. It's, uh, we see the good works. We see that's evidence. And I think we'd all, when it comes down to it, want to be convicted of, uh, of being a Christian. We'd want to have evidence in our lives of being a Christian. So I go back and I look and I say, um, God, we are again his workmanship. He's prepared good works for us. I want to challenge you. And I, I saw a lot of teens, and I was really happy to see all the teens that were here today. But uh, I'll go back to some of the good works. And um, when Paul talked about that widow and what she should have done before becoming a widow, she talked about bringing up children. And, um, and many of you have children. Um, there's always the um, temptation to let your kids become more involved with things outside the church or outside of youth. Than, than here. On the way here, I noticed a, uh, a football field in Millstone, and it was, it was just covered with kids on Sunday morning playing football. Those kids weren't going to Sunday school or church. So I, I want to challenge you, when that temptation is there to get your kids involved and, and not come to church and youth group, resist the temptation, sacrifice, take the kids here. If you're busy and you have different events or you're invited out to social events and that's going to interrupt the children being here, put off the social events. Take your children here. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the good works. Um, we're told to be peaceful and, and be gentle. And, um, and that means with each other, sacrificing for each other, reaching out to each other as a congregation, as friends, as fellow Christians, um, to be humble not to look for accolades, to serve without looking for accolades. Um, be ready for those who are in need. Mike and Nettie were ready. They just jumped upon a, um, an opportunity to bless somebody else. Um, you need to be ready. We need to be ready for good works. They're there. God prepared us for them um, in advance of our births. Uh, I look at it and think, visit those who are sick. Sometimes we're too busy. We say, oh, I, I don't have time. Um, but in actuality, maybe on the way home from work, we could stop at a hospital and, and uh, visit somebody. And I'll leave you with one last thing, and that is um, love the unlovely. I wouldn't be standing here today, possibly I wouldn't be saved, if my youth group leaders 
didn't reach out to me and accept me into that uh, coffee house. Um, they looked at somebody that, again, was a scourge in the neighborhood, that was a troublemaker, that showed them complete disrespect and others' disrespect. Yet, as a prodigal, they reached out to me. They showed love. It didn't matter how I was addressed or what I looked like or um, how I behaved, they still reached out. And um, as a 15-year-old juvenile delinquent, um, I was saved and I'm here now. Um, and I thank God for those youth leaders, the youth leaders here and in other places. So again, reach out for good works. They're there. All you have to do is look. Let us pray. Father God, I, I thank you for this opportunity to share your word with others, Lord. And I, I thank you for convicting me, Lord, of, of, um, of what I didn't understand, of having head knowledge, Lord, not knowledge of the heart or in the heart, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that I'm your workmanship and that we are all your workmanship, and, and we should be an expression of you, and I pray that that is um, what I do every day, Lord. Lord, I pray that you open our eyes to each other, to love each other, to sacrifice for each other, so that other people, non-Christians, would see that and see the witness, Lord, and they would be lead, led to you, Lord, and that others would follow and be saved. And I thank you, Lord, and I pray this in your holy name, in Jesus' name. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.